Hey, Arenacast listeners, this is Jeff, and I just want to start this episode with, I guess, a bit of a trigger warning. Uh, we're going to be joined by Raj this week, and we're going to be talking about masculinity. And like many of the conversations we have here on the show, it's kind of a starting point, but we feel with the particular climate of our culture today and the broad nature of this topic in general, we want to begin this episode by prefacing this really is a starting point. We have plans in the future to have more episodes to broaden this particular issue out. At times, it may feel like we're we're taking a side that is unexpected for the personality of our show, but that is definitely not the case. And uh, we think this is an important issue to hash out and continue to talk about. So if you've been affected by abuse, particularly around um, toxic masculinity, uh, just a trigger warning, this may be a difficult episode to listen to, so feel free to stop, but at the same time, feel free to push back and speak to us. Uh, so with that being said, here is this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me is my co-host, Alan. That is me. That is you. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, back with us again as a third member of the booth is Raj Rambob. He is an ordained UCC minister, just like everyone else at Intersections. I'm the... (laughs) I'm the lone non-ordained wolf, and uh, (laughs) he is also coming to us this week with uh, an expert opinion, really, on a particular issue that we really haven't tackled in the show. We're going to be talking about masculinity, and Raj is the perfect person to talk about this, aside from being a male, you know, that usually helps. But he uh, runs a group called the Multivaliant. Is that what it's called, Raj? Multivalent. Multivalent. I don't know how to read. Um, So (laughs) uh, multivalent masculinity group. And he's been particularly interested in this subject for a long time. So we're going to we're going to kind of hash this out. So for those of you female listeners who are female or transgender listeners, um, we are not going to this isn't like a man show type thing. I'm going to put that out there right in the beginning. We're not going to be doing anything else but talking about our experiences and all of our experiences with a certain form of masculinity that particularly comes from a you know, our conservative evangelical roots and really uh, the the branding or the term that I like is is what Science of Mike has used as he's talked about this issue is this new script for masculinity is broadening the definition of what masculinity is. And um, we're going to talk about certain things that come to that. And for our segment today, we're going to be doing uh, one of my favorites called Pursuit of the Trivial. Uh, so, Raj, let's frame this discussion. Give us a little bit on why this particular subject has interested you and how your view and idea of masculinity has changed through the years in your in and out of your deconstruction. Uh, <laughs> that's 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 huge. But small uh, question. It is. Just a little Yeah. Um you know the formation that you get in the conservative Christian world, at least my formation and I know it's not unique, was that you as the man are supposed to be you're groomed to be the head of the household uh, you're groomed to have some kind of leadership position in the church, whether it's in a in a lay position or some sort of an official position in the church, and that the women in the community and in your home are supposed to be uh, women and children are supposed to be secondary. They're helpmates, which is a a term my wife absolutely hates, and I would say I hate it too. You know, I remember even getting coaching from family and elders in the church, men and women 
that would, in, in my formative years, would talk about, well, as you start dating, you need to find a woman who's a little submissive and subservient because you're the head. You don't want these strong-willed feminists to uh god forbid <laughs> to be you don't want to be linked with them and who do i end up falling in love with the strongest feminist i know so that didn't go well that advice backfired in my 20s began looking at my family system and also in my church system and noticed it's really the women that are running everything you know they're really the ones that are the the engine behind most of what's going on in the community and the glue that holds stuff together, particularly in the Indian American community is the, my mom, my aunts, a lot of them were actually the breadwinners. I had the more stable employment long-term and kept the community together. And the men held these figurehead positions where they would speak publicly at gatherings and those kinds of things, but really had no idea how to pull anything off. So um, you're, you're, so that your heritage as your Indian heritage also was – that sounds very reflective of my experience in evangelical conservative yeah. family systems was that there was – there's very much a figurehead uh, aspect to it. So, you know, yeah, I had a double dose. And was your immediate family adoptive of that particular structure as well? Was that modeled for you at home? Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was talked about, but the modeling was really different because my dad was actually not a terribly authoritarian type. He was actually pretty nurturing, and my mom was – she was the one that had the steady job over time. My dad always worked, so it's not like he didn't work, um, but my mom was the one that had the steady job uh, over time, managed to, to hold that down and keep us all together for the most part and ran the household finances and um, was just a strong grounding presence both spiritually and structurally in, in the home. So. And and I, I observed that with my relatives as well, my aunts and uncles and cousins in their homes was, was similar. One thing I'd like to start kind of at the beginning and throw out there for the conversation would be just some of the basic stuff we've covered in the past, the difference between sex and gender, like your biological sex is one thing and your gender is another. And for me, I think uh, when I discovered – uh, that gender is a social construct, that it's not something that just arises naturally. It's something that we as a society determine what values. And Jeff, you said scripts, like Science Mike and the Liturgist talks about different scripts. For me, that happened when I read and watched some documentaries on how uh, femininity was portrayed in advertisement. Like when you go by a billboard and you just see people, it's kind of like you're invited into a world. And women were portrayed as like less in control just by the way they're standing, their legs are are bent, like decanted is what they call it. You'd have bent legs, whereas men would be standing straight up. Uh, men would be looking off into the future or they'd be looking right at the camera, whereas women are kind of more unfocused in where they're looking at. And there was this like uh, infantilism is a big part of advertisement and Hollywood portrayals of, of gendered identity. And women, if they look much more young, you know, with big bows on their head or something like that, somehow it portrayed more femininity. And digging in all of that, I realized like womanhood is constructed by society. We say the ideal woman is this age or, you know, is, is, is a younger person. And I think for all sorts of reasons, that's awful. But then I started to think through like, what, well, then what does it mean to be a man? And 
I personally, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's anything that naturally arises for this is what a man should be or has to be or what it means to be a man. What there are, are a bunch of scripts happening, traditional scripts, ones that have been not around for a really long time, ones that our culture is creating, ones our families create, ones we inherit. And for me, I only know what it means to be a man for myself in response to all those things. So there's not like this intrinsic thing in me that like, this is what it means to be a man. I'm picking up a loaf of bread as a man. <laughs> like there's not stuff like that. It's more like I'm interacting with all the scripts around me and figuring out what it means for me. But maybe that's because I'm a millennial and we're destroying the concept of gender. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And I think that that's an important clarification to start this conversation is that we're not talking about sex. We're talking about gender and its mm -hmm. constructs and everything that goes along that. And I think that part of that is just the place that we are in culture, right? our script, so to speak, or what masculinity has been, it's been kind of taken for granted because it's at the top of the, you know, hierarchy of all that, all that other stuff. And it doesn't feel like there's a lot of conversations going on about, well, how to rewrite that script as all of these other gender expressions are rising to the forefront and, and gaining more um, play, space on the stage as well. It should be like, that's exactly what we want But how do we, how do we back off, but then still, remain some have some sort of um I think it's more than that. I I, I think the scripts that we have are causing mass shootings and like are causing right. yeah. toxic yeah, I'm sure you agree with that. Are causing these toxic reactions and it's like, well, let's actually dig into what it means to be a man. Like when I was a kid, I I forgot where I heard this, but there's some research that says shushing for men actually happens before it happens for women. Like girls learn that their feelings need to be shushed and they need to be quiet about what they feel at one point in their life. Like, I don't know if it was like 10 or something or 12, uh, but for men, it starts at like four years old. You're supposed to push down the things that you feel because they're too much for the people around you or whatever. And, you know, that's the classic, like you guys have worked with men. A lot of men don't even know what they feel, <laughs> right? Like they can't even name it out loud because it's like you're taught not to know yourself. You're taught more to just do, right? You're just taught to produce, provide, protect. It doesn't necessarily – and this is what I was taught. Maybe my little Irish German roots are a little different. But like I was taught to be a man meant to sacrifice, to sacrifice yeah. your body, to sacrifice your health, yep. to sacrifice your time. That's when you know you're a man is when right. you've like abdicated yourself. And I think that even takes on like a nationalistic perspective. You send your soldiers out and it's like, if you can sacrifice your body and your humanity, then you know you're a real man. And so I think like that, that rhetoric is actually something we should probably pull apart. Well, that and, and that same sort of rhetoric, but for different reasons are what women often get is it isn't about True. you. It's about this other thing. And it's largely about the men in their lives. That's what you're here to lift up and build up. Um, so we're all trying to do something other than live into who we are. And we have these societal scripts um, that are thrust upon us. I think one of the things that's complex about this whole thing is is the fact that we have genderized – well, we've created gender to begin with, and then we've genderized – things that don't need to be gendered. Like you look at the color palette, you know, we all want a color palette. It's part of life and the universe. Why the F are we genderizing color? It makes no sense. 
in any society that functions well, there are different societal roles. That doesn't mean you have to genderize the roles, but they're important. You know, you do need people that are out there willing to fight bears if you're in a, you know, if you live in the woods and bears are a threat to your livelihood or caring for children, uh, caring for the elderly. Those are all things that you want to do in a healthy society, but it doesn't have to be assigned to a gender. Raj, I bought man's body powder (laughs) that's marketed toward men. It's like, why does that have to be genderized? It's body powder. It's the same ingredient as the other stuff. Yeah, but it's sprinkled with like, uh, like kind of pepper or something, right? My magic man dust that makes you feel. See, there's the suffering thing. If you're suffering a little bit, then you're right. a man. Then you know, right. like as someone who's codependent, I think that's probably the worst. Like, I think I took the brunt of that messaging harder I like than anyone. Burn. It's got to burn. If it's I know. Manly. That's so unhealthy for someone like with my problems to think of being a man is like, if you're suffering, then you know you're doing right. Like that'll get into your head, man. Yeah, but women women have that same narrative. That's true. You yeah, know, they're they're just su- we're suffering about different things that are prescribed based on our gender. Right, mm. but it's different, right? Like it is different. Well, let's start here. Let's figure out what we want to take away from the things that we were taught in terms of masculinity, and then what we want to replace it with or adopt instead. Because the way I see it is basically what, you know, let's, we've talked about the term toxic masculinity. So let's, let's define that, what things become toxic, because it is toxic masculinity, like Alan was saying earlier, that has led to, I believe, a big portion of the the violence that we have going on in the our- cell movement. Right. Uh, and all that yeah. kind of stuff, especially towards people who are not male. Um, and- so taking away those things and kind of picking away at what masculinity has been commonly defined as, and then broadening that path to accept all people. I feel like the reason that we have, not the reason, I don't want to simplify anything, but one of the reasons we have issue that we have is that certain fundamentalist contexts, they hold so tightly and narrow defining gender roles or gender identities that they create little room for anyone else. And therefore they push people out of these, you know, strict binaries that they put and then condemn people for creating the system that put them out there in the first place. Um, So for you, for you two personally, what were some of the particular things about how masculinity or what it was to be a man was taught that affected you? Kind of going back to your first couple of thoughts, Jeff, about, the arc of this whole thing. So I, I wanted to touch on that real quick. I'm all over the so, place. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I think our conversation right now has been a little bit all over the yeah. place because we're, we're passionate about this and we're, mm-hmm. and, and, and the three of us are, are kind of immersed in this conversation in an ongoing way. So it, it, we're, we're just opening up this ongoing conversation, I guess. So, but, uh, based on my observation and reading and, and reflection, kind of here's, here's how I've, I would describe where we're at. So patriarchy is often credited as being the beast, the monster. But looking at it, patriarchy really has no inherent moral compass. It's just a structure of societal governance that's led by men. That doesn't mean the men are anti-women in a patriarchal structure. Our problem is, is that patriarchal structures are there and uphold male supremacy. So Male supremacy is, in my opinion, really the root of it. Men are just better than women. 
uh, and uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what male I was going to say. Thank you for is. clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify, and and what further complicates it, this notion of male supremacy, um, is is based on the constructs that are toxic masculinity, and and one of the definitions that I've come across that I think is a pretty good one can be found on the Good Men Project, which is a uh, an online forum, and they've got some resources. I'm not in line with everything they do, but a lot of what they do is pretty cool. But here's what they say. Uh, they define toxic masculinity as a narrow and res- repressive description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural ideal of manliness where strength is everything while emotions are weakness, where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured while supposedly feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as a man can be taken away. Which is really fascinating because, like you said before, there are things that don't need to be genderized. And, like, sexuality is even one of them. Like how sexual you are as a person. That's right. Doesn't mean you're a like you're more of a woman if you're less sexual, and you're more of a man if you're more sexual. That's like that. That does not even make sense from a biological perspective, and how hormones like express and how receptors work and all of that stuff. So I think that's really fascinating. And violence too. Like that does not necessarily a genderized thing. One thing that you just said, I want to kind of touch on. Jeff is asking what we were brought from our script. Because that script was present, right? Willingness to be strong and do the violence was a part of how I was raised. I think for me, the emotional intelligence thing is one of the most serious problems with masculinity. I was taught that doing what you had to do regardless of how you felt was the prime objective of being a man. Like you really did shove down your fear, shove down your sadness or your worry and just get the job done. And all of the heroes had that happen, right? All the football heroes, all the the soldiers that we watched, all these great men went through that process. Now where I'm at, I look at men who are really in touch with themselves and with other people's emotions and able to speak those things, identify them, know them, share them, take care of them, like be interconnected. To me, there's a level of maturity that's not just men, I guess. I'm not genderizing that still in my head. I'd love to, to you know reclaim that. Not just the man who can cry, right? (laughs) But the man who can sit with his emotions, know what's going on inside, and know what's going on in other people and not be threatened by it. That's a sign of just maturity, not just manliness, but I want to bring that into my own life. And then as far as aggression goes, (laughs) earlier this year, I decided to go vegan and I went vegan for three months. For for other reasons, I stopped. I'll get back to it. But um, I think, you know how we have the script of men or the meat eating aggressive gonna you know kill my food and bring it in and uh what what was it in uh kicking and screaming with will ferrell uh his co-actor is like i eat a vitamin every day it's called a steak <laughs> right they thought, yeah. like, that's how you're supposed to be as a man and mike, like, Ditka? mike Ditka, mike, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was mike Ditka. and uh i kind of wanted to reverse that that idea like i looked up and saw vegan bodybuilders people who are really into compassion in the way that they eat also they're like they're eating foods that are healthy for them, you know, and and their bodies that people don't think is going to build them up into the bodybuilders that are the the manly, you know, 
huge kind of thing, but you can get there by eating vegan. You can have a, a big, strong body. And I know it sounds weird, but it's really important to me. And for some reason, this is the, one of the first things that comes to my mind is like, what about seeing a big dude who got to where he's at by being vegan and being compassionate and less aggression and more like, you know, eating plant-based foods and like that being a part of his masculinity and not just this other thing we've been given, like, you know, big old tri-tips and barbecues and all that kind of stuff. That would be a reversal of a script, right? Or am I that just in my head? I mean, almost, because you still got a big, strong dude. Yeah. And that, yeah, you're, you're still, you're, you're just using a different, uh, a shirt to cover the same, like, masculine picture, right? Like, muscles and, I think, I think part of the problem is the fact that there are scripts. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. Maybe not the same. The, the, your body, your body is different though. I think people who, who eat vegan and who, who do that, their bodies do end up being different than people who do eat meat. One other thing I, I was thinking about was thinking about manliness in the form of bodies. Like there is no perfect man, right? There is no body that is like the platonic, like Plato talked about forms. You don't look in the sky and see a form. I love the statue David. Have you guys ever looked at the statue David? Oh, yeah. Okay. So David is posing like one of the most, he's got his muscles and stuff, but he's posing like a, a, a feminine, what would have been a feminine to contemporary uh, onlookers at the time. He's posed in a more feminine way. And the way he's like structured and stuff is actually calling into question some of the binaries of, of male and female. We just don't pick up on it, but like, I think there is no ideal male form, but that script is super strong in our society, especially for young men. So a lot of the incel movement, the ones who get violent, they think they'll never be that that ideal form. And so they actually lash out because incel means involuntary celibate. Sorry, I think I'm like spiraling right now. <laughs> it's involuntary celibate. People who want to have sexual relationships with women, but they can't for whatever reason. And they feel like they're like less of men and stuff like that. And so what they do is they turn toward hatred, hatred of women, hatred of men, hatred of society that has put them in a situation where they can't reproduce even though they want to. And these are scripts that are inside of their head. And so because they can't attain that male form, then they act in violence toward everyone that they feel has wronged them. Well, I think that they, that's wronged them. more accurate, I feel like they assume the script has been written by women and not by men, right? So it's yeah, women that yeah, have this ideal person and we don't fit that mold so we are going to revolt and it's women's fault not whatever and 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 see that's part of the problem for me is that maybe the question of what is masculinity is flawed like i understand the question from uh, a female standpoint you know in terms of celebrating women and feminism and stuff like that because it is it is it is a reckoning so to speak where it's like We've held on to a form of masculinity for so long. It's time for us to let go and broaden that base. And that's a privilege, right? It's a privilege to be able to let go and reform and come up with something new because we've never had to go through the the process of gaining legitimacy to even have the privilege to redefine what we are and who we are as men, because it's been a given for the societies that we've lived in and we've been a part of. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really tough to come to terms with, you know, you talked about the incel and some of the other things, I think men, and I would include myself in this as hard as I try not to be part of this group. Uh, but you know, we've been formed by certain things. We have certain self identities, but I, when it comes down to it in today's day and age, 
all we've got is violence. That's it. I mean, there's really nothing we can do better than women can do. All we've got is this willingness to engage in violent behavior that women, as a rule, are generally not willing to engage in. And so you see things like those mass shootings. You see, I mean, domestic violence has been with I guess the question is, not to interrupt, Raj, but is it that they're not willing to, or is it they have it, society hasn't given them a platform to also engage equally into violence? I don't know no. if they're, 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 I don't know if they're connected. I, I wonder if gender and violence are connected. They just happen to be because of the power dynamics. So you're asking about like nurture and nature and all that kind of stuff. But regardless of how it comes out, the truth is men do more violence than women. Yeah, just period. But that's Absolutely. because of, that's because they've had the power to do it. So my question is, w- is w- women can't buy guns. Yeah, women could buy guns and walk into a room and shoot people, but they don't. And I, I but because I the structure if- it hasn't given them a narrative to sure. to to provoke them to do so. So you're saying, you know, nurture we're nurtured into being people who do violence. Like, I'm just you know, hesitant, hesitant to say that any gender is predisposed to be like this. I think it has sure. much more to do with the nurture of the culture that those genders are in. And I, I think regardless uh, of how it arises, um, I'm less interested in, in figuring out exactly how it arises, but I'm really interested in what Raj is pointing out. Is it like, that is a little un- uniquely male thing right now in our society is violence. And in other societies, too, to be frank. But, you know, Jeff, your point is you, we cannot extricate ourselves from our formation as much as we'd like to say, well, you know, we're all born with the blank slate. You know, what is it? The tabula rasa. Right. And it's our environments that create us. Well, yes, our environments create us. And this is who us is. Men are killers more than women are. And it's like that's all we have left. You know, we've got a president of the United States who engages in violent rhetoric because that's all he's got. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He can't have a serious substantive debate about anything. Um, So he resorts to violence and dog whistles repeatedly because that's all he's got. So this is one of those things that I think we we have to reckon with. Now, I do think. Are you saying I uh, are you saying that men react violently because that's them holding on to their masculinity? Absolutely. That's I, really interesting. I think there's part of that. I think that one of the the things of masculinity that I think contributes most to that is and that contributes most to Trump's xenophobic xenophobic and racist rants is the quote unquote value of masculinity that's been placed on us in in terms of protection. You are protector, protector, right. protector. And that is the one that is not the one, but that is the main course of masculinity that was taught to me that I have fully rejected. Not to say that I don't think we should protect each other, but I think that that has been correlated so long with violence because it's always like, well, you need to protect your family. And then that's the rhetoric that's used to protect our borders. That's the rhetoric that's used to do these things that we ordinarily wouldn't do if we don't do it. And I can tell you, and I'm saying this ironically, but also like legitimately because it becomes like this, this dog whistle. But as a father of two daughters, I think that being a protector above everything else is bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, because it is, it's not, it's not my job to, you know, make sure that every room in my house has a gun and that if something comes in, that the most important thing for them to be is safe for something that statistically would rarely happen. And then what kind of world does that create? Because I think that that world reflects not only is that the home that I'm creating, but that's the Mm -hmm. society that I'm creating where everything is about protecting you from this this non-existent 
not non-existent, but, you know, this threat, especially from the people who perpetuate it the most, they're living in suburbs. They're not even living in places that the the government and society has actually made unsafe because of this exact uh, this exact type of thing. So the people that are most unsafe in America, Americans, are unsafe because of the rhetoric that we've placed on protection that ostracizes minorities and and LGBTQ community and all that kind of stuff. So it's a self-perpetuating, violent crapload of philosophy that we've been taught that, that's been attached to Jesus on the cross because he was strong and he protected us all from the sin <laughs> of the world or whatever the hell another, crap gets put level. out there. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that in terms of the, the, the society. It's not I think- a mistake. It's not a mistake that um, fascist societies are really big on defined gender roles. Right. Like if you look in the history of the world, hypermasculinity and defined gender roles were a part of everything. Uh, Italy, you look at all of these dictators and fascist leaders and like that's that's a big part of their understanding. That's where they get their power from. Right. And we, you know, for men to be important in the current paradigm or the, the, the paradigm that we were brought up in, uh, you have to have this enemy who's equipped and ready and desirous of striking and taking away the life that we know because then our use is like well you know because if they don't exist because if they don't exist then you're not a man because you don't have an enemy to protect we don't have we don't have shit to do that's true (laughs) that's interesting i feel like society has failed us as men in some ways and one of those ways is we don't have shit to do i feel like you you know you just you said that and it just sparked something in my mind it's like if you look throughout the history of the world, there was always places and things to send people off and do. And now we have a crazy amount of quote unquote manpower, like young boys and stuff that have all this energy and nowhere to direct it, at least nowhere meaningful for whatever reason. I mean, you, you could point at technology or developing society or whatever you want, but I feel like, especially in education, we do a really poor job of tapping into the energies of people and directing them and giving them something positive to even do. No, I, I'm with you, Alan, and and I think there's there's a lot of merit to what you're talking about. Even if we had, again, kind of going back to what we talked about a, a couple of moments ago, if we removed the genderization of ways to contribute to the fabric of society, sure, whoever is drawn to caring for children cares for children. Doesn't matter what your biological tidbits are or aren't, you care for children. So that would then give males or the masculine, an opportunity to care for kids. Right now, that's not really part of what's available to you. Anything that has to do with nurturing, flourishing, healing, tends to be the feminine domain. I think that's part of it. What I'm trying to say is that maybe opening those up you know, to, to boys and men. I mean, like for me, I wasn't allowed to even be uh, working in the nursery when I was in high school. Other high, like high school girls could, but I couldn't because I was a man. Even though I was really, I'm right. a nurturing person and I was interested in that. So I, I get that. But I think for whatever reason, nature or nurture, I've hung out with a lot of kids and like seen how, you know, energy is deployed with young girls and young boys and people in between. And I think that like, especially for, for, for maybe it's the scripts our society gives them, but young boys have a ton of energy, like crazy physical energy that is just like, <laughs> it gives me a rough right money. Like it's really difficult to keep up with them. And I think the way that we educate kids, especially, I don't know if there's a lot of room for that. 
and this is a, for for all genders. It's not just men. You, you you take kids whose bodies have evolved over however many millions of years to be like running and doing stuff, and then you set them down in a, a square room with a table, and you're like, you're gonna sit there for eight hours. That's the main thing we're training you to do. And it's like there is a lot of bristling energy and potentiality that like doesn't really go anywhere. And I think, especially for me as a man, like seeing that just get worse and worse as I kind of grow older. I don't know if there's a lot for us to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, here's my, here's like, my problem with, well, maybe not problem with all that, but here's my question. And here's, here's what I struggle with. It, it seems like a lot of times when we talk about these things as men is that, well, we should be in nurturing spaces and, you know, women should be able to be in combat or whatever, whatever example we want to use as far as like equality of genders. How does it then not become the colorblind argument in the sense that, by saying that everything should be equal, it's kind of a dick power move from us coming from a place of masculinity because it doesn't take into account the history of disproportional treatment of those gender roles leading up to this. And how do we then how do we honor gender, but then also not make it an issue, just like when it comes to to race and color is how do we not say, you know, well, I don't see color and I'm colorblind, but that right. does, that 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 creates a false equality that we're starting with, which we aren't either with gender. And I don't know. I don't know the solution to this and I don't know the answer to it. But I think that too many times are when we talk about gender and masculinity, it starts to veer into that lane of of not acknowledging the inequality well, by suggesting that everything should be equal. The younger, especially because the younger generation is undoing the concept of gender. I feel like all of us are talking with our scripts, what we grew up with, like with what we understand. And I think the younger generation, the one that's coming next, the one that's in school right now is like undoing the concept of gender, gender in general. Like we're, it's going to be a different conversation 10 or 15 years from now. Maybe. Um, but, Maybe. but I hear you. And I, I think it's still important to think about gender in society. Like I think a lot of feminists and people who are pushing for new definitions, they're not saying gender is not a thing. It like is a thing. I mean, it's a thing functioning in society and it's something that we function with. The thing that I'm kind of like, and this is a side issue, let's just move on from it. But like the thing that I was getting at was like, there's football, right? For your energy, you go into football, you get CBT or whatever that is, and you mess up your brain and your body because that's what it is. Or you go into this or into the army. And it's like, these are the things that like you as a man, at least where I was from are given. Those are your options for your excess energy that you have. And there's not like, great options, especially for young men when it comes to putting their energies to work. And so violence seems to be, you're right, Raj, like the thing, right? Right. I also think like in terms of the whole gender argument and stuff like that, it should be one of our, our values that we should adopting as, as males, if we, we want to put it in that strict thing is the ability to let go and leave space for someone else to define who they are and not have to comment on it, but just celebrate it. I think that that at the heart of the the argument or at least the rhetoric that's an important step for us is to to leave that space and teach people in general but specifically males because as males get older they're still going to have that place in power like I'm and again I'm in a small you know sort of southern california community and I'm watching um my girls go to kindergarten and seeing the structure of class and all the kids and all that kind of stuff those boy girl things are still there like the, the structure is still influencing that next generation in those typical yeah. things it's a little bit better i guess but it's 
it's still there. And I don't, I, I just, I think it, it, it's really a burden of leaving space for people to express who they are. Right. And I, I, um, the enemy of where we're trying to go is a, you know, might be a pursuit of universal androgyny. You know, where Maybe. We try to, where we try to strip away our differences. And so femininity, masculinity are not the enemy here. You know, the gender constructs around them, which I think in some ways came out of a need for tribal survival, possibly. That's what some anthropologists say. Um, but we've moved beyond that. You know, we we don't need to have those hard and fast right. gender roles for human flourishing to exist anymore. We don't, but they're so connected to seats of power. Absolutely. That that's where the the deconstruction needs to start. Well, Absolutely. It's not just a matter of letting people kind of express their, their gender. I think that's like common denominator, right? For all progressives, we're like, yeah, that's we're, we're on board for that. Sure. But I don't think there's a positive script for young men. We had a whole episode on the disappearance of young men from public spaces because there's like this crisis right now. They are not enrolling in colleges. They are not forming relationships or families like they used to. They're just disappearing from society. Like that's that's a real thing that's happening right now. And I think part of the reason for that is that we haven't provided positive scripts that are not toxic. Well, I I, I want to push back on that a little bit. And and I, I see a direct connection between what you're talking about and some issues on race. I think there's there's a, mm. a connecting point here because, uh, you know, like this whole uh, coming back to, you know, President Trump and stoking this white angst and agony over like they're coming to steal your jobs and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, you know, wait a second. If you've been here, if you're a white person and you've been here for what, 10 generations or whatever, and I can outdo you for a job. I should get the job. You know, if I'm better prepared, I'm better educated, I'm I'm better suited for the job. It's just who's best for the job. And I think white men in particular have grown accustomed to not having a lot of competition for opportunities. That's possible. And now that there is competition, white people are competing with non-white people. Part of that is in the United States, the U.S. government only lets in people with money and educations. So those of us that are let in right away, we're, we're on pretty good footing to beat out a lot of white people for good jobs because or the educated, uh, financially well-off ones are the ones that are allowed in. So, you know, right, right there, there's an issue. And then you have more women now pursuing higher education uh, and doing well in school, especially in grad school. The numbers are startling. And I think it's wonderful. It's a wonderful shift. But for men to say, well, we don't have a – yes, you do have a script, and and those opportunities are still there. You just have to work harder than you've had to before. Nothing's I coming think there's to a you reason, just because. But I think there's a reason – like, okay, so hey, maybe this is a part of the conversation. Men have 50% less testosterone than our grandfathers did on – in general, on the whole. That's an, that's a, that's an issue. That's, a, that's something what it means like – not that like sex and gender are exactly the same thing, but they do inform one another and they do play out in culture and like what it, what it means to be a man has changed. And I think you're totally right. Like we're going, we're going in the right direction, but I just wonder like, have we really recreated something positive for us in that new space? Does that make sense? 
Yeah. And I think because of technology and the way of, I could list off a hundred different reasons why that's the case. I do think there's a leveling effect. And I think you're right, Raj. I think a lot of us are not used to having competition or something like that, but there's something else going on here too. That- well, I, I, what approach that we could take in, in this is all genders at the table. And, and, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I want to recognize a special, uh, you know, for our transgender, uh, th- that's that's still something we're in in process with. That's a group that we, as a society, still have a ways to go. But for Absolutely. for those that are more cisgender, whether you're gay or straight, but if you're cisgender, the shackles are coming off on what you can and can't be. And so, rather than wanting to necessarily create a new narrative or script that redefines something in another direction. Just the shackles for all are starting to come off. So interesting. What is it that you're drawn to? You know, is it to create art? Is it to bake cookies? Is it to work on automobiles? And it doesn't matter if you've what's between your legs or whatever. So you're 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 both you both kind of said the same thing. It's really about discovering who you are and not running with a script that's pre-made for you. Well, and that, I mean, it's easy to say, but like Jeff said, he's got young children uh, who happen to be girls, and he's noticing a lot of gendered stuff. And I'm assuming, Jeff, in the community where, where you and your family live, most of the families that go to your kid's school are pretty open-minded people. So far, yeah. And and so even even then, you know, I just visited some friends in Sonoma County, which is a very progressive place. And... There's a, you know, gender is still very much present in, in all right. things at their kids' but, school, too. And in my area, I would assume it's the same for that area that you're talking about, Raj. But uh, there's a there just there's a there's a difference between progressive and white progressive. And I think that uh, <laughs> uh, are, are we going there? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I see it all the time. Like, you know, white progressive is uh Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between that and uh, something more traditional or conservative. And it's a lot of times it feels to me more in word than deed. Uh, liberalism. And but I mean, I guess that's a whole another episode uh, right there. But I think I think we're right. I think obviously we're not going to solve the world's problems in this particular episode or this particular conversation. But what? I think it's important one for us to have to start having. And um, I think Raj is already having it, though, right? I want right. to hear just a tiny bit about the multivalent masculinity thing. Like we didn't touch on that. What is that? Your group? Uh, yeah. So it is basically having a conversation about, OK, you know, what what does it mean to be a man today? You know, what are the things we're struggling with? What are, you know, identity issues and what the what's next thing is? That's the part where we're coming to some roadblocks because there is no roadmap for for what's next. Um, I, but I we're think men. We, that should be exciting. That's adventurous. And yeah, we're yeah, headed into the wilderness. There's no roadmap. And, <laughs> you told me, you told me <laughs> offline. GPS. You told me offline that uh, you welcome anyone who identifies as male. As masculine. As masculine. Yeah. A- anyone who identifies as, as we, we say, you know, more masculine than feminine because we're dealing with masculine issues, regardless of biology. See, even that, though, is so weird to me. Masculine, feminine, like those words, I I bristle at them now. Like when someone says, oh, that's masculine, I'm like, mm. Rather than manly? <laughs> You're like, so good, Alan. Honestly, I don't think those things exist. 
I like masculine oh, come and feminine. On. You don't think sound. masculinity and femininity exist? They do, but I don't think that they arise just from biology. I think that they're they're almost a hundred percent society created in my mind. Yeah, I think they're names for something that does exist in biology, but they're not conscripted. I don't, I don't know. But biology not, is like they're a... not conscripted to a biology. I think we as humans have masculinity and femininity in us because that's required for life. What's the difference between masculinity and femininity for you? That's biolog that's besides biological sex organs. Like what to you is masculine and feminine? It's the difference between so, vinyl and sandpaper, my friend. Smooth <laughs> oh and rough. God. That's the <laughs> smooth and rough. No, and that's a great question, Alan, and I love it. And I don't have a concrete answer for you. But I'm gonna I'm gonna offer an illustration that I've been meditating on that I'm I'm hoping will lead to some more concrete language. If you have a masculine presenting male, and I, I would put myself in that category because that's what I've been told repeatedly, and a feminine presenting f- feminine woman who both tend to be nurturing. And I would I, – I, so I'm going to use my wife and I as an example. Uh, and we both were very hands-on parents from the beginning of our, our children's lives. When I held and rocked my boys – it was a different, although I was gentle um, and cooed and, you know, cod, you know, just made googly eyes and noises with them when they were little. That energy and that what's going on there is somehow different than when my wife engaged in the very same kind of behavior. Because she grew them in her body. <laughs> she, well, that's absolutely. Absolutely. But but and, as far and, as but, but as far it, as there's something different about the masculine energy. See, that's that what I might disagree than with. The feminine energy in that space. I, and I think that's a Raj energy and a Bonnie energy and not a masculine energy and a feminine energy. Mm-hmm. I, I think like as far as masculine and feminine, I don't know if they arise just from sex hormones uh, and, and like your bio- biology. I read. um God, what, what is it called? Uh Something about like T-Rex. There's a book on, on, uh, testosterone and how it doesn't necessarily correlate with the things that we consider as masculine. And it's a fascinating book. It's the scientist who wrote it and we'll put it in the show notes. But like, I really do wonder if what we consider masculine and feminine are entirely culturally created. Richard Rohr talks a lot about masculine energy and feminine energy and other people do. And I just don't know why I'm not comfortable with it. Well, okay. Let, I, I think, I think maybe, maybe our, our queer sisters and brothers are onto something here because one of the terms that I love is is the term butch because butch transcends gender and sexuality. If you're like that, that person, Sally, Raj, Alan, Alan, you're so butch, Sally, you're so butch. It's this thing that translates gender, right? I mean, we can all. It talks about something cultural, not not entirely biological. Yes, but anyway. You, there, there's butchies in every culture. I've been to India and seen some butch men and butch women. They're like in village India. The conversations around the queering of yeah. our understanding of humanity. Yeah, but isn't is that like the kind of the exception that proves the rule? Like a term like that wouldn't exist unless there were already strict binaries of what was feminine and what was masculine, and that there had to be something that describes. I don't know. I, I'm not I'm no, not an I, expert on any of those, but sure. I feel like there should be twelve episodes on this because I have so many questions right now. It's big. 
And you you guys have said things that are so interesting. I think that's I think that's actually a good place to end is this open ended spot to hear from people because the, I think the issue of masculinity in particular because it has been such a source of power historically and in the lives of so many people and even from people that are coming from our context who grew up in church masculinity was taught across the board more than anything else even to women during this and I think that yeah. part yeah. of part of the rescripting of masculinity is that. Unlike other gender expressions, we, in order to have a new script, we need to hear from people who have been negatively affected Absolutely. by the the place of power that masculinity has affected in order to really redefine it in a way. And it can't be just about us. So let's open up the conversation. Absolutely. And I think we can take notes and start having more of these conversations as yeah. we go forward. I want to offer up a couple of quick things, if, if that's all right. Yes. Yes, um, absolutely. One is a book, which, again, it doesn't help us launch into the future, but it, it is kind of cool. It's by uh, Dr. Melvin Connor. He's an MD. That's K-O-N-N-E-R. Title of the book is Women After All, Sex, Evolution, and the End of Male Supremacy. And he's got some really great assertions. He goes into biological issues and then some sociological issues and then offers kind of a vision of where he can go and what he's basically doing, he's telling men, it's it's kind of sort of a man-to-man conversation, I guess. We basically, as, as a species, the males are no longer necessary for human survival. Science, technology has made, has rendered us not necessary for human life to continue. But from the women that he's interviewed, women don't want to just, you know, extinguish us from the face of the earth, which he's grateful for. And then kind of issues this call to like, well, let's figure out how to be useful now. You know, what are what are ways we can be useful in the future? And that's uh, the conversations we have and, and sort of an image to offer where I think the solution rests that I get from my study of womanist theology. And the image there is the kitchen table. And, and the idea is the best theological conversations happen at the kitchen table uh, Oftentimes with people who have never read a theology book or been to seminary. And I you've been this, reading Womanist Midrash. The opening of that book is amazing. We'll put that yeah. in the show notes. So th- this conversation, too, I think the solutions are at the kitchen table. Have these conversations with the people in your lives. And and for, for the men that are listening out there, just shut up and listen for a while. <laughs> You know, just just listen. Listen to it your stri- kids. It strikes listen. me as ironic that we're saying these things out loud. I know we're Man, all shut up, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm on a mic right now. <laughs> right? Yeah, I feel like an ass. I, well, I, that, but. I, actually, I'm going to walk away with that too. That's the one thing I'm walking away with is is what Jeff Jeff said, and you've reiterated is that everything has always been defined around men being a positive thing, and then everything else is defined around masculinity. That goes all the way back to like Greek thought. And and the differences between men and women. And I think you're right. Taking a step back and realizing that everything doesn't have to be defined around what a man is. Like being quiet and listening to the other people that are a part of the portrait. That may may make a lot more sense. Like where we're seated at the table. I like that. 
Well, let us know what you think. Push back. We want to hear more about your stories in relation to this particular issue. You can do that at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 130 or check out our Facebook page. A lot of conversation happens there. That's kind of where most of our audience has tended to gravitate towards, but we're looking at all of our platforms. Uh, and if you want to know where that Facebook page is, just check our show notes, irenacast.com slash 130. Uh, hopefully we can keep this conversation going. Uh, on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing around a pursuit of the trivial. All right, so if you are new to the show or you've been recently starting to listen, I guess that's the same thing, new recent listener, uh, we have this segment called Pursuit of the Trivial. And basically how this works is that each of us have come up with a scenario, a question that could lead to a potential argument about absolutely nothing. So in the past, we've mindlessly debated about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. Uh, We've talked about French fries. Uh, Those typically have been my offerings because they're, they tend to be food related. Um, So yeah, so we're just going to just randomly argue about something silly and stupid to kind of cleanse our palate from a discussion about something that's real and serious. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's your uh, Seinfeldian trivial thing that you feel passionate about? What would you say? Raj, let's go ahead and start with you. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with pizza. I'm I'm really old school. I'm a traditionalist on pizza. Like you put pepperoni on there, it's pizza. You put onions on there, mushrooms, it's pizza. You put anchovies on there, it's pizza. Pineapple. You put eggplant on there, it's no longer pizza. It's crust and it's sauce, but it's something else. And it might be enjoyable to some people, but it ain't pizza anymore. Huh. I w- I, I would Broccoli, say potatoes. Come on. <laughs> that is not pizza. I would say it's still pizza. If it has a sauce and a, and a crust and a shape and cheese, it's pizza. It's a sandwich. It's an open face sandwich. It's a flatbread sandwich. <laughs> no, you can't define a whole food by the ingredients that you put in it. <laughs> oh, yes, you can, sir. No, no. So a pizza is a pizza by structure, not by ingredients. Like that's the beauty of a pizza is that it is customizable to what you enjoy. Actually, okay, I'm going to go with Raj. How do you differentiate an open face <laughs> sandwich from a pizza? You do, I think right? I'm going to go with Raj because what if I put like – you know, nuts and bolts, and I just dropped some uh, some tools on top of a pizza. Was that still a pizza? Well, keep it maybe out. later as society progresses, and we're not even talking about gender or race. We're talking about whether you're android or human and where your intelligence oh and soul as a human lies. And yeah, maybe later on, droids eat nuts and bolts. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> Jeff, would you still consider broccoli on Sir, Red I like and... broccoli on my pizza, and I have had it on my pizza you many have a time. Asked that because he's a broccoli fan. Many a time. Establish that this pizza is, is so a, troubling. Pizza is about the structure. It is your crust. It is your sauce. It is your cheese, and it can be vegan cheese. It can be gluten free crust. It doesn't matter. It's the structure that makes the pizza I think pizza. Pizza is a tradition and not just a structure. I think I'm with Raj. Initially, I was like no, but I think I'm with you now. It can be Thank called you. something else. How could not. two progressive men be so fundamentalist <laughs> about something like that where it has to be this or it has to be that? I suppose you Look, believe the Bible is literal also. I suppose I you believe know. that. <laughs> I think that you're sitting against the, well, who made up pizza in the first place? Is it Italian or is it's it American? American? It's American. 
And an open faced sandwich is bread and it's two separate slices just because it's flat. Like you'd be closer to saying it's like a tostada or a burrito than an open faced sandwich if you're going to make those kind of delineations as far as what kind of food it is classified as. Pizza. If you if you go by ingredients, it's not a pizza. If you go by ingredients, then you are disregarding an entire culture's culinary advancements in Mexico because everything is made from the same exact ingredients. It's tortilla, it's rice, it's beans in different <laughs> no. forms. The form is what makes no, the food. Not. A burrito and a taco are the same thing based on ingredients, but it's the form that makes it. And the same thing is true for pizza. I really so shouldn't have started dieting right now. Like ricotta veal meatballs in a burrito in a tortilla shell and wrap it up like a burrito. Is it a burrito? Yes. Because it's the form. I don't know. It's a so meatball sandwich a, in a tortilla. We're given if forms to pizza, experiment with. To, it's a to, meatball sub. If you had a pizza with, with a tons tortilla. of little pizzas on it as a topping, would that still be a pizza? I would, Man, I thought that would Android create a pizza to pizza space time continuum. That's a nerdy ass food joke, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> but like, okay, so when when we were a younger family and didn't have a ton of money, my my wife, who also grew up without a ton of money, she would make um, uh, English muffin pizzas. And those things are delicious. But so we, good. We lie to our children by calling them pizzas. Oh no, they're pizzas. <laughs> Their pizzas, Alan. You've I gone back and forth on this. Right <laughs> don't take, don't take my childhood, Raj. Don't do that to me. All right, they said so it was pizza. Final vote. Obviously, this isn't definitive because I'm right. But final vote, just for a consensus, for those that believe the toppings make the pizza, say I. Well, just to be, just to be blunt, those English muffin pizzas had traditional pizza toppings, so I'm going with Raj. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You can right. <laughs> I think it's two to one, Jeff. Because that, it becomes that's a lasagna. Fine. That's can, fine. You know, that's fine. We can, if we want to lower the quality of our show, that's fine. And, and, <laughs> and put out falsehoods. I guess I have to, because you know, majority rules, majority broccoli on pizza and call it pizza. Yes, you can. All right, Alan, do you have a, a trivial pursuit for us? Uh, yeah. And you know what? I, I did it wrong. Cause this is not something you can necessarily argue about. It's just something that really pisses me off and I kind of needed to talk about it. So uh, these things always end up, you just break the rules because you need a therapy session. That's true. I wouldn't be doing this podcast. If I couldn't <laughs> use it as my therapist. Um, so do you think that gas stations should ask you if you want a receipt before they give you gas? It's one of my biggest pet peeves. When you go up to pump gas, you select what kind, and it says, do you want a receipt before you've even pumped your gas? And to me, if I say no, it's like, well, are they going to cheat me? <laughs> like a little bit of gas? I didn't think that there w- it was possible to put anything in this segment that was truly like trivial enough to not have an opinion on. <laughs> but that that's something that is never in just the history of my second. life <laughs> yeah, dude no, i'd rather for argue second. about which way to put the toilet paper in the that, i know okay well just listen for a second if a gas station says do you want a receipt and you say no it's like well then who's going to keep them honest so are you suggesting the the counter that determines the gallons of gas that's going in in correlation to the amount of money that you're spending that the speed of that counter changes based on the fact on whether you press yes or no to a receipt i'm saying it could and even if it's like point something of a cent, <laughs> if a million people do that, that's a lot of money. 
You know what I mean? Like, why even put me in that position? I think this belongs in a new segment of... called Ridiculous Conspiracy Theories. Right. <laughs> no, look, look, it's, I'm not saying they're actually doing it. I'm saying I resent being put in the position to think they're doing it. Someone, someone out there is going to be like, Alan, I've thought about this too, and it's kept me up at night, and we're going to be friends. Some listener out there understands what I'm saying. All right, Jeff, what's what's yours? I obviously you don't care. Honestly, I forgot at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that was I was blown away by that, Alan. That's that's impressive. It's... I think about this at least once a week. So, wow. Yeah, I feel like we should pause here. And are you okay, Alan? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think the game. I think the game should be. Let's give Alan some other things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny, Rush. <laughs> That's very funny. Okay. Whew. Um, so I, I'm hesitant a little bit about this because I don't want to be associated with a certain fandom when it comes to Star Wars, but I'm going to put it out there anyway, is that Star Wars is not sci-fi. Well, I've heard of this. You have said this before, but not on the show. It hasn't Just, been on the show? Okay. I wasn't sure. hung out for like the last decade and a half, so I've heard you say it before. I agree. Oh, okay. Well, It is sci-fi. No, it's not. It, it's poo-fi. It's much more fantasy than it is sci-fi. It is closer to Lord of the Rings than it is Star Trek. Because sci-fi, it's... Sci-fi, usually the best sci-fi, is is invested into the world and the technology of that world. And then it's also uh, more social commentary, where fantasy is this fantastic world, and it just happens to be set in space instead of like a medieval setting or scenario. Absolutely. I'm totally with you. Sci-fi is an extrapolation of current possibilities, not... Not yeah, like, it's like the force and lights. Well, like know. it's all it's sci-fi. I mean, it's fantasy. I feel the force, Jeff. The force to me is totally sci-fi. The lightsabers are fantasy. How is the force sci-fi? There's no there's no technology based in it. Like the force is the same thing as like magic of Gandalf or something like that. <laughs> no, but the lightsabers. Why does the beam stop? <laughs> why doesn't it just but that's, keep going? So you're making an argument that the lightsabers are more <laughs> oh, fantasy man. than the Force. Okay, then let's shift this because that's this ridiculous. Is <laughs> hey, this is great. This is worse than the receipt No, this one. is perfect. Listen, so the Force is less fantasy than lightsabers are in my mind. How? Because like there's, there's an actual like technology how? behind the lightsaber. No, there is no technology that just stops the beam three feet out. That's not how beams work. Well – that's the whole point of technology, right? Is to to create something that that's They've not how it normally works. Anything that would it's, do that. It's a fluorescent bulb. It's not possible. Uh, it's well, not of course it's not possible. possible. It's not possible to to go to light speed, but that's like a definitive nature of a lot of sci-fi. No, you could go to light speed. But yeah, the force has no could. basis other than a fantasy basis. You couldn't theoretically stop a laser halfway like 3 feet out. That's <laughs> just not how it works. I can't believe that I'm having <laughs> are, this conversation. Are lightsabers lasers? I don't know what. The, yeah, what are they? I, I didn't think they were. Lasers. Are they like Smurf tears or something? <laughs> like, I, don't I don't know. To me, that's more fantasy than the Force. Absolutely. Than the Force. Like I get the fantasy aspect of the lightsaber, but to say that it's more fantasy than the Force, that there's no like, how is the Force sci-fi? Tell me that. It's not. No, it's it's sci-fi. How? Oh come on! You can't just say it is. How? I think. 
I think if you if you're extremely empathetic, you can really cause physical things to happen in other people. You're going with the metaphysical route. It's just crazy empathy. Oh yeah. Listen, you got you got another one, Jeff? No. <laughs> I feel Raj like it like, doesn't matter what I put Raj out there. Is like, Alan's going to take in it this in this direction <laughs> that is unfathomable. Alan. No, that's not. Okay, there's someone out there who's going to agree with me that the it, lightsabers are much more fantasy. I'll say okay, I'll I'll say the force is kind of fantasy, but the lightsabers are more fantasy than the force. I don't I don't even know how to how to address that. I'm we're going to just have to leave it at that. Um so I think we've gone. I think we've gone. <laughs> a little too far. I think we've jumped the shark. <laughs> we uh, have jumped. We have. Uh-huh. We're grilling it now. Okay, I think uh, on that that'll do it for us this week. Uh, Raj, how can people find what you have going on on the interwebs? Uh, easiest thing is on Facebook, Rev Raj Rambob. All right, and Alan. Uh, same thing. You can find me on Facebook at Rev Alan O'Brien and friend me, and we'll be friends. Sounds good. And you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi and listen on the second and fourth Thursday of every month to my other podcast, Divine Cinema at divinecinema.net. As for Irenicast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out our listener survey at irenicast.com slash survey. Uh, the information that you give in that survey is super helpful to help us move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's irenicast.com slash survey. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Raj. Thanks for joining the conversation. Thank you.